Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Revealing the truth behind the games we play. Coming up in this episode... That it's what you do off the track that makes the biggest difference, right? Things sometimes aren't perfect around a race, but you have to work through it. You have to work around it. See their own physiological limits, and you are one of them. (laughs) I don't know what happened, but I guess I just blacked out and fell into the crowd. Welcome to the Science of Sports. I'm here as usual with Professor Ross Tucker. My name is Mike Finch. And today we have a very special guest with us, uh, South African distance runner Dominique Scott, or Dom Scott, as uh, some most of you know who she is. And just to kind of, uh, before we actually sort of formally introduce her, just to give a bit of background to where Dom comes from. Ten years of professional running, she was a South African junior champion over the 1,500 and 3,000 and as far back as 2010, which is reasonably recent for Ross and I. Um, 2012, you went to the States. 2015, you graduated with a marketing degree, and then from then you become a professional athlete. You were the NCAA 2016 champion over 5 and 10,000. Um, 4.8 for the 1,500, 31.51 for the 10,000 your PB at the Olympic Games in 2016. Um, is that kind of a rough a rough uh, pricey of your performances over the last few years? Yeah, yeah, that's a, great, a good little summary. What was the highlight? Oh my gosh. Um, I think you can probably guess what it was, but you may as well tell us. Yeah, I mean... It was a, obviously a huge highlight winning the double at the NCAA championships in 2016 in Eugene, Oregon at Haywood Field. Um, the double, the 5K and 10K is not done very often, um, but my coach and I gave it a bang the year before. I'd come runner up in both events and then to come back the following year and win both was was pretty cool and just um, a great way to end my collegiate career as well as help my lady Razorbacks win their first national outdoor title as a team. So that was definitely the highlight of my um, college career. Yeah. And then obviously getting to run in the Olympic Games in Rio in 2016. Later that summer for South Africa was Uh, just a surreal experience. I mean, it was something I'd been imagining and dreaming of since I'd, you know, been about 12. Um, So to actually do it and to have my family and my husband's family there in the crowd um, supporting me was incredible. I mean, one of the the reasons why we're doing this podcast with you is to kind of delve into your life as a professional athlete. So just describe what it's like lining up in in a 10,000 meter final at the Olympic Games. I mean, what, what is going through your head? Are you looking back at your career from 10 years and going, I can't believe I'm here. I mean, where's your mind at a at a place like that? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, 2016 for me was more about qualifying for the Olympics. It was more about the experience and getting there. Like I said, I'd only graduated from college a month or two prior to that. So I still felt pretty young. I'd only run in one professional race or one race as a professional before the Olympic Games. So standing on the start line, I was definitely very nervous. But I told myself that I 
had earned my spot there. I had earned my spot on the starting line and that I was going to enjoy it. So even though it was very overwhelming to be in the huge stadium and see the best 10K runners in the world alongside me as we were doing strides on the track before the gun was going to go off, um, seeing my family's, my parents' faces um, in the in the stands and seeing my husband, um, it just kind of made all those hard choices that had got me there worth it. Um, so try to just be present in the moment rather than get too nervous or too overwhelmed. Intimidating when you're lining up against Kenyans and Ethiopians who you probably watched on TV for many years and suddenly you're there with them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it's definitely a little bit terrifying to know that there are girls um, that can run as, you know, as sub 30 minute 10K lining up with you. Um, but yeah, I, I knew that I'd earned my spot to be there, so I just needed to be present and enjoy the experience. So the first question I've got, I know Ross has probably got a million questions for you, but when you talk about elite athletes, the one thing I always want to know is what does a typical training week look like for you? Can you <laughs> give us a kind of an idea of how many hours? And I mean, I know you've got your phone opening it now. And it's probably gonna <laughs> well, be a I'm going to do some, con <laughs> no, I'm going to do some conversions quickly um, of miles to kilometers because <laughs> or no one is going to understand what I'm talking you about. You can say miles because we're actually pitching to this, uh, to an international okay, audience. Yeah. So you Perfect. Can, we'll we'll, we'll con convert. <laughs> Ross is quite good with math, so you yeah. can convert very quickly. Mm -hmm. So tell us in miles anyway. Yeah. So, okay. So my week is obviously, I am a professional runner. I get paid to run. So we take, we take our running very seriously. It's our job and it should be the most important part of our day. Um, I think that's kind of the number one rule of in my group and with my coach. Um, and our running doesn't take up eight hours of a day. So it also, you know, there's extra emphasis on making sure that when we are running, when we are at practice, that we're um, present and we're giving 110% effort. So um, most weeks I'm running between 70 and 80 miles a week, um, which 80 miles is 128 kilometers. Um, and that is normally made up with a majority of it is recovery runs. And then there are normally three workouts a week, one being a longer run on the weekend. My long runs get up to 17 miles, which I think is around 27 kilometers. So it's pretty far. And our long runs are actually very hard. Um, they're not a walk in the park. <laughs> Normally there are no conversations had on our long run. They're at about six minute per mile pace or even faster. Sure. Um, and then before every run, we are doing activation exercises that take 10 to 15 minutes. That's like a mandatory thing to make sure that everything's functioning well. Um, and then after every workout, we also have a strength workout in the gym, which is, um, you know, working on our weaknesses, making sure that we're working out any kinks that have occurred or arisen <laughs> during the workout. Um, and those workouts in the gym normally run from an hour to an hour and a half. So it's quite a lot of training in the week. Sound kind of typical of an elite Olympic 10,000 meter athlete, Ross? Yeah. Yeah, there's some different paradigms of training obviously like you get some people will do more volume than that there was talk this was this was the most extreme and outrageous example but remember when the chinese were doing all the damage in the 1990s mike this was before dom's time but ours they were claiming to do 250 300 a week for their track runners but they were oh. drinking turtle blood well so they yeah. were drinking more than <laughs> they were drinking more than turtle blood so i don't think that was a that's not a realistic example i've heard of other 10k track athletes doing upward of 180 200 a week um, I don't know whether this is a philosophy that your coaches have got, whether you've encountered in the US. 
I do actually want to explore with you in this discussion the because in the NCAA system you would be exposed to quite a lot of different approaches. Yes. Yes. So it's quite. I think it'd be quite interesting to tease apart some of those. They're, they're basically philosophies around training. So the one you're on now seems to me to be moderate volume, focus a lot on intensity and really important or prioritization of like off the track activation and that sort of stuff, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's, that's I think, fairly typical. Are you saying that Dom's kind of low mileage then or, or mid mileage? I'd say mid. Yeah, I mean, I would there'll actually… Be other, there'll be a lot of women in the US doing a lot more. Yeah. And I, and I agree with Ross. Um, and I mean, in the off season, my mileage does get up to 85 miles a week. So that's, you know, probably closer to 140 uh, kilometers a week, but in the track season, we can't cover quite that as much as that. Um, but then also, you know, I run anything from the mile all the way to the 10,000, the 10,000 being my upper, upper range of racing. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think maybe that, has to do with it um and then yeah i definitely think there's a there's a lot of intensity in our workouts um a lot of them are on the track so a lot of impact um so yeah so i know there are a lot of 10k runners that run quite a bit more distance than i do what's interesting when you talk about that long run that you do once a week and how long that is and how intense it is i think if you look at modern sort of reading Runners World magazine, for instance, and look at all the coaches, they'll say, train hard intensity at short intensity sessions and long runs are super slow and super easy. Is, is that not the sort of philosophy or are those easy runs really easy outside of that long run? Yeah. So before I joined my new um, training group, which my coach now is Joe Bosshart, based in Boulder, Colorado, um, I joined him last year, March, so about a year ago. Um, and the that would have been 2018. Um, and before that, Lance Harder, the Arkansas Razorback coach, had been coaching me since the middle of 2011 when I went over to the States. And Coach Harder's long runs on a Saturday, I was max getting up to 14 miles. And that was, you know, only in 2015, 2016. And those runs were always easy. Um, they were kind of roll out of bed. Um, let's just stretch our legs. Let's have a chat. And maybe we'll throw in a little fartlek or tempo if we are wanting to mix it up. Joe's long runs are totally different. They're hard. Um, you're either going up very high altitude from Boulder, Colorado. So you're either driving up the mountain and running at 9,000 feet and running hard the entire run, or we're down low and you're running fast. Um, and I really enjoyed those hard long runs. Um, I think it's another way to push yourself, another system that you're using. And yeah, I've, I've enjoyed it. I mean, it is two very different philosophies, isn't it? I mean, is mm. there any science as to which one works better than the other? No, no. I mean, just sitting and listening. <laughs> I was hoping like, a, bit, a bit more definite about that. <laughs> no, there's no yeah. – that's why these philosophies exist, and they have since – remember Lydiard was at long, slow distance. I mean, now we're going decades back. Yeah. And they've tried various combinations of things, and they don't work. And I dare say there'll be some athletes who would, would uh, capitulate quite quickly under the pressure of never really having an easy day. Yeah. Um, other athletes would handle it just fine and wouldn't adapt unless they had the constant training stimulus. So that's why it's interesting to me that as a if, if you're coaching athletes, then you're 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 baking, you're you're using a recipe, but sometimes that recipe doesn't work in some people. So 
Well, that's what's interesting. I suppose for somebody like you, that might work, but then somebody like your training partner, Emma Coburn, it, she might, does she do something completely different to you? No. So she's been doing these long, hard runs on the weekend since she was in college because Mark Wetmore, the, univers- the coach of the University of Colorado, that was one of his training workouts in the week. So she's been doing them for um, probably about 10 years, much longer than I've been doing Mm -hmm. them. Um, But yeah, it is interesting. And when I tell people that we do these long, hard training runs, they're kind of blown away because, you know, Emma, for example, is only racing a 3,000 meter steeplechase, yet she's running up to 17 miles hard um, on the weekend and it could even be up at 9,000 feet. Sure. So um, just, yeah, like just technically though, when you do those, that's, you said six minute miles. So that's 3.45 a K, which to a person who can run a 10 in 3.10 a K is not easy, but it's not anaerobic. No, yeah. So the, the point is that they're still oxidative, which is to say they're still at the pace or the intensity where you are getting most of your energy from using, being able to use oxygen. So the coach there is probably just looking to maximize the oxidative stress because even when you're running a 1500 or a 3000, a lot of your energy is coming from those so-called oxidative pathways. So I reckon it's just a way to get maximum outcome or return on a two-hour, I mean, what's that, 20? It's not even two It won't two take hours, two hours. Yeah. It'll be an hour and a half session. You know? yeah. So if you, if you ever get yourself in a situation where you start to go faster than oxidative pace, then that session, I think, starts to actually hurt you. I suppose that's that's what it's about. It's about training just enough so that you can train the next day and the day after that and right. build slowly through the right. process. Right. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Obviously, I don't know the science behind all of this. <laughs> that's, that's why. why <laughs> yeah, that's why I have Ross. That's why I have a coach. I don't write my own workouts. But that makes sense because I actually really enjoy these harder, longer runs. Um, you know, normally I either have training partners or my husband or dad cycling next to me, and I still feel very comfortable at that pace. I don't feel like I'm overexerting myself. It's more like... This is a fun, hard, long run. <laughs> Do you still get a thrill? I mean, I, I know that I will never be able to run at that pace for an extended period of time, maybe a K, but do you still get a thrill about feeling yourself being able to move that quickly along the ground? I mean, do you still get that, wow, it just feels amazing to be in that zone of running fast? Definitely. Um, I definitely think there's some type of you know adrenaline that you get from um, some of the workouts we do, as well as a sense of pride, um, because we're we're working really hard and pushing our bodies, you know, to a whole nother level. And when you're able to do something that either you or your coach thought was going to be a challenge, and you're able to, you know, crush it or nail it, like my teammates and I like to say, um, you definitely you definitely are proud of yourself and get a sense of uh, adrenaline and satisfaction from it. Tell us about the intensity sessions. Those short sessions on the track what does a typical one look like oh my gosh this without giving you a trade secrets yeah no sure. no no um there are just so many different workouts that's why you know it's it's hard to even know where to start and so let's okay so this the the last session in the two weeks before rio 2016 oh i have no idea um. <laughs> Love that to was that three that years ago. <laughs> no, that'd be interesting. <laughs> three years ago, I can tell you what my last two track workouts were. If that okay, helps. You, yeah, you're because you're at the moment you are you're here for South African champs. That's yes. why we've been opportunistic. And then I know you fly over to California, and you are trying to get the qualifying standard to be able to go to Worlds this year. So yes. So you're in pretty sharp shape at the moment. So lay it on us. Okay, cool. So the past um, week I had two track workouts on Sunday. So just yesterday um, I had four times a mile 
plus three times a K. And between everything, there was three minutes rest, which is almost full recovery for me. During those three minutes, I was jogging 200 meters to make sure that I was keeping my, my legs moving. The miles were more at a controlled pace. They were 505 pace. And then the Ks were... 305, 305, and 255, so a nice hard last K. Um, so this was obviously more of like a 10K type workout, um, feeling the rhythm, the rhythm with getting quite a bit of mileage um, on the track. So the key part of that is actually the rest in between, isn't it? Because you want to make sure that those quality miles and Ks are quality and not run where you're actually really tired from the previous interval. Is that about right? Yeah, correct. I mean, a workout, you know, you can run that same workout with less or more rest and the workout's changed. Yeah. yeah. So it depends what you're trying to achieve from it because if you're doing, if like I'll oversimplify, like a fatigue tolerance training session, then you, you, you cut the length down, but you keep the quality the same. So you're actually forcing your body to handle the existence of fatigue, whereas this sounds to me like it's actually just because what was it? Five oh five miles. So that's three four ten times, Four times a mile. Yeah, so it's five at five oh five. Yes. So that's three ten a k, and then you're running a little faster for the kilometers. So yeah. you're in that zone of like this is now manageable steady state. So then, if you cut the rest, you compromise the speed. You achieve a different thing in the session. So if the average, if somebody's listening to this and they're saying, okay, I want to do my little interval set to the weekend, this is a set that's designed to create rhythm and speed rather than endurance. Correct. I mean, I think terms. for yeah. me, when yeah. I was doing the workout, it was imagining running the 10K and you're, you know, you're trying to, you're trying to be comfortable uh, with a pace that's, you know, maybe just slightly faster than um, yeah. comfortable. <laughs> yeah, this is a 10K simulation session. So, so what, what does that look like for me who might run a 10K in 55 minutes? Say, so that's 530, okay. So you'd be running these miles at 515, 520 and the kilometers at five. Because yeah, yeah. then what you're doing is you're giving yourself recovery to allow slightly faster, but not radically. I mean, for Dom, it's seven or eight seconds a kilometer faster than her anticipated race pace. Have I got that right? Yeah. It sounds about right. Whereas for you and I, because we were relatively much slower, we'd be going 15 to 20 seconds a case slower. So it's a percentage of that time that you're looking at. Yeah, yeah more yeah. or less. Yeah. So it's a 10K simulation. Yeah. So that's an example of some where you're doing reasonably fast intervals. Are there ones where you do 200s and 400s? Yeah, so then last Wednesday, so a few, day, a, few, um, a few days prior to that workout, I had another workout on the track, which was a ladder down. Um, and ladders are always kind of one of my favorite workouts. My coach in college, Lance Harder, always used to throw a ladder at me. Um, they're just fun. Um, and ladders normally work they can be in two ways either you're climbing up in distance normally then they come back down in distance too um, or you're starting at a higher distance and working your way down to a shorter distance and normally the paces are getting faster um, as the distance goes down so I had a ladder down on last Wednesday it started with a mile went mile 1200 kilometer k 800 400 and then two fast 200s to end it off once again, there was three minutes rest between all of that. I think Joe wanted to make sure that I was recovered um, because also with a race being so close, you want to make sure that you're feeling good in these workouts. We're not trying to, um, you know, test myself to any, uh, yeah. 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 Ross, comments on that? 
No, those are cool sessions. I remember doing them at school. I mean, sound like quite a lot of fun, even for the average runner. <laughs> yeah, they they're are hard cool. but fun. They're cool. I remember when you do those in a group, it's always fun because certain people are stronger at different ends of the spectrum, and so they become quite dynamic in a group environment. But the point there is that you get progressively faster yes. as the distance drops down. So you change the physiological stress from the start to the end of that session. So Dom's mile there would be, I guess, similar to 10K pace, maybe even a bit quicker. It was a bit quicker, yeah. yeah it was, I think, 5.40, yeah. I mean, sorry, 4.40, yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> More like our pace, 5.40. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's sub-30-minute 10K tempo, yeah. right? So that's quick from the start. But by the time you get to the 400s and the 200s, you'll be going at, at, at way even faster than your 1500 pace. So that's a fun, that's a fun session. It's good. Yeah. One of the interesting things you said there is that when you get close to a championship race like you're, you're at now, it's, it becomes a mental rather than a physical thing. So that session sounds like it's, it's a mental thing because you're finishing it faster. Therefore, your body's remembering that session as you were going faster rather than battling through a, a long and slightly slower set. Is that, is that kind of making sense in terms of where your mind sits when you start the ra- on the race day? Definitely. I mean, I assume that this is what my coach does. You know, once again, I, I don't ask too many questions about all my workouts and the whys. I just have, I trust my coach. Um, I think that's very important to, you know, to trust your coach. Um, once you lose trust in your coach, I think, you know, the relationship's over. Um, but yeah, there's a time and a place to push yourself and to try workouts that, you know, may break you and you may not finish. But when you're getting into championship race season, it's about feeling good. It's about leaving the track, feeling confident and feeling ready to race. I mean, what's interesting when you say that you you just kind of trust your coach, is it kind of trusting blindly or do you sometimes go, look, I don't think I can do this today or I think I'm in the wrong space right now? Or is is he just using your metrics and saying, this is the session today? Or is he basing it on what you tell him on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, I mean, it's a relationship. We talk to each other on a daily basis. I'm constantly letting Joe know how my body feels, no matter if I'm on a different continent or in the same town as him. Um, And, you know, we're working on progressing and working towards the same goal together. Um, So there's definitely a lot of communication. It's not a blind relationship at all. But I also need to trust that you know, he knows what he's doing and he has my best interests in heart and at heart and wants to make me the best athlete possible and also wants me to win these races. I mean, Ross, it is, it is a, a kind of w- the relationship between athlete and coach is somewhat different. A different, different dynamic always exists between different athletes. Um, but we see a lot of athletes saying that it is kind of you have to follow the coach's mm. program because the coach needs to know that he's, what he's doing is correct and working. Yeah, that, so from the perspective of the coach, the most difficult thing is signal versus noise. So for instance, an athlete will say, I didn't sleep well last night. Is that an important outcome of something? Is the athlete getting sick? Are they maybe a little bit overtrained? Or should I just ignore it and proceed? That's one example, right? <laughs> and it's the same thing. Like if the coach is able to watch you train, he'll see things if he's got a well-trained eye. And so actually... This session, let's cut it. We plan to do 12. We're going to stop at 8 because I can just see that this isn't going well. So one of the big challenges, and I wanted to ask you this, is you're not with him a lot of the time. Even now, you've had two weeks here, and so you have to try and communicate only verbally. He's got no intuition or visual cues to work from. So that must be quite difficult. It is difficult for sure. Um, And, you know, listening to you talk, I think – 
because we're professional athletes, I say we're my teammates and I are professional athletes, we, Joe, trust that we're going to do everything right mm. to be in our best state of mind as well as body on the track um, and for all our, uh, of our workouts and that we are taking our job seriously. Um, so I think if we go to him saying something, normally it would be bigger than we didn't sleep well last mm. night. Um, but I think that he immediately knows that something's wrong. It's not that we don't want to work. All of us you know, are putting a lot of effort into this. Um, so I think there's a level of trust there that if we come to him with something, sore throat, sore foot, whatever, that it's something serious and, you know, maybe it needs to um, make the workout be adjusted. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, being so far away from Joe is definitely challenging, but there's unfortunately nothing we can do about it. Um, you know, I need to be in South Africa running these championship races to qualify to run for South Africa at different events. Um, so we kind of just try to make it work. I think I communicate a lot more with him than my teammates who are in Boulder do, because obviously they're seeing each, seeing each other and, um, yeah. There's more interaction. There. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas yeah. for me, I'm really needing to explain to him how I felt, what's going on. Um, yeah. yeah. So that's so in, in sports science now, one of the in, in elite high performance sports science, the, the ability to measure and manage recovery and training adaptation is a big deal. And every single sports team is investing, especially with smartphone technology and apps and that sort of stuff that allows you to do that. And I remember when I was with the South African Sevens team, we used to have an online system and the player would have to, every morning when they woke up, complete a short questionnaire, how did they sleep, um, state of fatigue after training compared to waking up in the morning, that sort of stuff. And that would then be fed back to the strength and conditioning coach. So the reason I'm telling you this fairly boring stuff is that it got, it got to a point where the investment in measuring it actually started to produce the value, not the numbers themselves. What I mean by that is that the guy who used to get that information was our strength and conditioning coach. And he got so familiar with players' routines and how they were because he was with them 60 hours a week that he would come down to breakfast and he'd say, Frankie, you didn't, you're, not, you're not right, eh? He'd say, how do you know? I haven't even done my questionnaire, but it doesn't matter. Because the, the process of asking the question and then answering the question and asking and answering, you're, you're learning about one another so much. So when the coach and the athletes have a have a immersed relationship like that, then intuition and just good in-depth communication matters. Whereas when you're slightly distant, then you have to f systematize or formalize it. You know what I mean? So yeah. the, the goal for any athlete with their coach is to become so in sync that they almost don't have to say it. It's just known. And I suppose you also have to be very, very honest because I can imagine you might wake up in the morning not feeling 100%, but saying, well, I've got a session today. I don't want to disappoint my coach or disappoint the people who are supporting me. Um, so I'm going to do it, but maybe I'm not being honest about how I feel. Is that sometimes a temptation? Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you may wake up on race morning having not had a great night's sleep. Or, for example, I once raced a 10K road race, the BAA 
10K road race and the hotel that the athletes had been staying in, the fire alarm went off at 1 a.m. in the morning and all the athletes had to leave the hotel and we were standing outside on the street at 1 a.m. and the race was at 8, you know. So things sometimes aren't perfect around a race, but you have to work through it. You have to work around it. Um, so I think the same occurs um, to a workout if it's windy or if you didn't get a great night's sleep or if, you, if you're just a little stressed, you kind of have to sometimes try and work through those. How do you um, navigate or stay below the ceiling that very highly motivated type A personality types who would be, I suspect, overrepresented in endurance sport yeah. often exceed? Because I'll bet that there were 50 athletes starting out NCAAs with you and 45 of them are gone. So like, 100%. how do you, and, and, and so, so highly motivated people and... I'm loath to say woman, but that's only because <laughs> that's only because there is a very specific physiological, you know, it used to be called the female triad. It's got another name which now escapes me. But the the potential to overdo it is far greater than to underdo it. Yeah. So how do you how do you <laughs> navigate that? That's funny because I actually think I used to be one of those A types that maybe wouldn't have made it. I honestly think my husband helped me out there, so maybe it's the male yeah. Im input. Yeah. Um because I Leaving South Africa, I had moved across to boarding school at the age of 14 and somewhat taking care of myself from 14 to matriculating at 18. And to do so, um, I think I had kind of become a perfectionist at planning and pr trying to time management and do all of those stuff perfectly. Um, that once I was 18, I was had had my ways and I was very particular about how I did things and um, planning ahead and yeah, just making sure everything was always perfect. Um, and then when I got to the States, I tried to do that in my new relationship with Cameron and he was not having it. He was, he didn't want to plan out every minute of his Saturday. And if something came up, if an invitation came up to go and do something, but it wasn't what was planned on the agenda, I was not having it. And he said, we can't live life like this. You know, <laughs> we have to live a little bit, uh, have a little bit of spontaneous, uh, be spontaneous yeah, sometimes. Some fun, sorry yeah, yeah have yeah. some fun um so Cameron probably helped me out with that my teammates are also great I think we help each other um you know we don't have a strict diet we follow we you know eat whatever we're craving um and we kind of ha try to have fun with things um you know we're always singing in the car on the way to practice and just trying to enjoy life um and I do think that a lot of female distance runners are very type A and they unfortunately just take life a little bit too too seriously and it ends up actually killing them and well killing them by the way that they don't enjoy their running anymore and just yeah, can you know, be worse yeah. can actually literally do it well, so yeah. see you've got your phone out there so you've obviously yeah, looked up something very interesting I put my foot in it there Mike so <laughs> I just had to check so the, the IOC bring out what's called a consensus statement. This is where they get together like world-leading experts in a specific subject and then they collaborate on a research paper. So Margot Mount, this is just for listeners who are interested in the science. So it used to be called the female athlete triad, which was the combination of disordered eating, um, irregular menstrual cycles, eventually leading to hormonal changes and low bone mineral density. It's now been called Red S, relative energy deficiency in sport. So this is this is just the, one of the physiological outcomes of 
what I think happens to a lot of young athletes who are just obsessed about distance and diet and weight and so forth in order to train. So I think that's kind of what we're talking about. This What Dom's led it into is I think an even broader issue around the psychology and how much you compromise and so on in order to run as opposed to live impulsively. Coming up. He wasn't able to push me into that kind of pain zone anymore. Not just about practice, it's about what you're doing in those other 23 hours a day that matter as well. Normally, there'd be a fail-safe against that, which is why you never would have trained yourself into this state. You know, what, what makes you move from somebody who's just a fairly good school athlete, suddenly you realize you're reasonably good, and then you suddenly have to make that jump where you need a coach, and everybody around you is kind of doing their job to help you further your career. I mean, is, is that a pressure that you feel as an athlete? Yeah, I mean, I think my career has very steadily taken small increments and small steps towards becoming an elite athlete and um, where I am today in my career. I remember clearly my first semester at the University of Arkansas back in 2011. It was the fall cross-country season, and I was not the best athlete on my team, even though I'd uh, been given a scholarship to run and study at the U of A. I was not the best. I wasn't even the best first year on my team. And that was a huge shock coming from South Africa, where I was one of the best South African, young South Africans. Um, and at my first cross-country nationals at the end of the season, I came 144th. I mean, that's terrible. <laughs> it's humbling. Um, it's humbling. It's very Wait, humbling. Why, why, did you, why did you go there? The University of Arkansas actually has a really good reputation um, in their track and field um, career, I guess. Um, they had John McDonald, the men's coach, for um, years, many years. And I think he won 42 national titles, the team did. Um, and the women's team has kind of always been on the cusp of greatness. They have amazing facilities. And then I guess the other reason is that Christine Karma had gone to the University of Arkansas. Oh, yeah, okay. And so she kind of uh, steered me in that direction because mm. there were a couple of universities I was looking at. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. So for our international visitors, yeah. just to let you know, Christine Kummer, one of our South African track stars along with her sister Renee who have uh, dominated, well, not dominated, but have been fairly dominant forces both in the sort of mid-distance track events right through to 10K, 21K on the road. So. Yeah, yeah. But what I wanted to say, so I placed 144th at my first cross-country nationals. And it was then that I realized that everyone, all these athletes are coming to practice, doing the work at practice, but it's what you do off the track that makes the biggest difference, right? Because at the University of Arkansas, we had about 20 distance runners on the team. Everyone came to practice, did the same workout, and then went home. And, but there were always athletes that were, were better um, than, you know, one another. And I realized that I needed to be doing the extra stuff off the track if I wanted to be one of the better runners. So it was after that season that, you know, I decided that I needed to be eating, sleeping and recovering like the athlete I wanted to be. And it took it took some time. It took about two years. But in my second year of eligibility, third year in the States, um, I won my first Southeastern Conference title and things just started to click after that. Um, and, you know, obviously went on to win five national titles. But So what did you change? You used to go to bed at 
eleven p.m. And now <laughs> you said from now on, lights out will be nine p.m. Is that or did you change diet? Like, how did you go about making those changes? Um, diet was definitely a big one. When I got to the states, <laughs> there were so many new, exciting food groups that I felt like I needed to try, and I'd been missing out on Chick Fil A. Chick Fil A, I love Chick Fil A. How did I say it wrong? A lot of Chick Fil A. Chick Fil A is like like KFC got even less healthy. <laughs> <laughs> is that possible? Yeah, it's, it's, it's nice though. It's so delicious. Nice, that southern food is yeah. proper. So was that the kind of stuff you got stuck into when you got to the States? Definitely. Yeah, I felt like I had to try everything. And, you know, people would always ask me like, oh, have you tried this? And I would say no. And then they said, oh, you have to try it. You know, meanwhile, it, it's still this it's fast food or whatever. <laughs> it's still just junk food. So definitely I had to change my diet um, and just be more conscious too about what I was putting in my body even things like taking some type of recovery drink or chocolate milk or eating some type of food to replenish what I'd lost during my workout um, within 30 minutes after working out or drinking fluids drinking water throughout the day to make sure I was hydrated for my practices in the in the afternoon definitely sleep making sure I wasn't you know partying and doing the whole college scene making sure I was resting on the weekends when I didn't have class you know things that aren't really too complicated doing my stretches after runs doing a little bit of core work every day not things that people haven't heard of before yeah that's as you're saying this I'm like none of this is innovation but but it's it's all it's all stuff that everyone go oh yeah of course See, I look at that and I think when you say you finished 144th in your first cross-country event, why not think, why is it, why, I would have gone, I just, I can't do this. Or is your mind certainly going, no, actually, if I make all these changes, I can. Because those changes are micro changes in the scheme of things. Yeah, yeah so what's... But 144th feels way down the list. So I think it's interesting, like if you come 144th, you'd, you'd almost think back to the drawing board. Yeah. And like I've got to actually restructure everything, whereas you went straight to the, the, the nuanced subtleties because you recognized that they'd pull everything together. So that to me is interesting. Like how did you arrive at that answer and as opposed to what I think most people would probably mistakenly do and say, I'm doing, I mean, I don't know what you're doing when you went there, but I would imagine it was 60 miles a week. I'm going to do 150. Yeah, you see, I, and I think a lot of female distance runners would do yeah. that. And they, as races don't go as well as they'd like or seasons don't go as well as they like, they just start cranking up the mileage. But I think the thing that I looked at was I had a teammate that year that I think she placed around 48th, Kristen Galepsi, and I would placed 144th. We were both doing the same workouts and similar mileage. So I knew it wasn't the practice. It had to be something else. So that's why I went to that. Other and were your times the same in training? So when you were... So you um, very say, well, similar. Very similar. similar. Yeah. Hmm. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Yeah, it's an yeah. interesting It's an interesting thing that such a like, relatively small changes can make such a massive difference. And I suppose it's a lesson for all of us. You know, just a bit of a diet, a change in diet can make a huge difference for the average athlete in many respects, Ross. Yeah, but that's because they pull, they pull that other stuff together. Yeah. So these things don't add up linearly. It's not A plus B plus C plus D. It's A, B, and C are there, and then you bind them with D, E, and F, and then A, B, and C become bigger. You know what I mean? It's a, they exist almost in parallel to one another, so they actually amplify. 
which I think is quite a useful way to think about these things because they are that none of them are innovative, but they're hard to do. Yeah. Like the stretches and stuff. That's the first thing you would sacrifice if you were a little bit pressed for time, maybe a little bit bored. But meanwhile, that's the one thing you shouldn't have sacrificed, but you did. Exactly. I yeah. always think it's so funny that runners, distance runners in particular, that we will spend an hour, hour and a half running, but then we don't want to spend the extra three, five minutes stretching or, you know, doing our activation that, exercises. That stuff is brutal. It's the same when you're slightly injured and you've had one injury scare, really, which you would have probably had to lay off the running and then they give you rehab. Mike and I, I mean, this old body and yours, we've had plenty and then you, you go to the physio and they say, you've got to do these. It'll take you two minutes a day and you don't do them. Right? Yeah, I mean, that's a classic example. Well, it's yeah. because you don't necessarily benefit. You, yeah. you don't think that there's a benefit. Well, if I go running, there's a benefit. I'm going to get fitter. Right. If I do my stretch, well, it's not really going to make me get any faster. But actually, you're right. We, we, we miss that point out because we don't see the immediate benefit. So You're then, going to have a beer straight away. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, we're not trying to qualify for anything. Right? <laughs> so then the, then the really interesting thing is, had you not been in that system, had you not had, what was her name, Kirsten? Yeah, Kristen Gillespie. Had you not had that person to see, would you have made mistakes? Would you have not recognized what needed to be done? And then I guess my question is, had you not left South Africa, you wouldn't be a, you wouldn't be a pro runner now. I, I don't think, if I had not gone to the States, if I had not run in the NCAA, I don't think I would be running professionally right now. Mm -hmm. um, I was one of the better South African junior athletes coming out of high school, but I was nowhere near becoming an elite athlete. And I needed a few years of to progress me and to get me to that next level. And the NCAA got me there for sure. Do you ever wonder why you and not, any of the other 100 you were 144th yes so there are 143 girls ahead of you and none of them won that ncaa double yeah um you know i wanted it i remember well my husband remembers this more clearly than i do but apparently when i was a freshman in apparently like my first week of school up in the in the states i told cameron i told my husband i said i'm gonna win a national title and he looked at me like he was like I was crazy and laughed at me in my face. And apparently I got really pissed, really mad <laughs> and stormed off. I didn't even know what nationals was at that level. I mean, I hadn't even won a cross country race, you know, a dinky little cross country race. But here I was saying that I was going to win a national title. Um, so I guess I've just always wanted it and always had the drive and was willing to make you know, to stay those extra five minutes after practice to do some accelerations, to do my stretches, to do some core work. I was always willing to make make those extra, um, do those extra things. And So, yeah. yeah. So then I have a question from that, but just as an aside, it's funny how you'll pick up a lot of motivational books or you'll read athletes say that the thing that gave them the opportunity to succeed was someone who believed in them. <laughs> <laughs> and in Dom's case, it was someone who laughed at her when she expressed her ambition. So it goes to show you can never package these motivational things in books and apply them. Like you just need someone to tell you that you can. Well, Sometimes you need someone to laugh at you and you'll prove them wrong. Well, I mean, that's the thing. There's something inherently inherent in your psyche that's able to say, I can yeah. take on this challenge. Because you're coming from a relatively small athletic nation in South Africa yeah. where the competition isn't as deep as it is in the States. Suddenly you're competing against hundreds of athletes who all of them could be where you are at an Olympic Games if they yeah. train hard enough. But you take it on and you say, I can do this. And I, that's what I find remarkable is that you're able to move your sort of small country psyche into a, 
the biggest country in terms of athletics in the world and say, I can I can beat everybody here. Oh, and, and I'm and sure. I find that absolutely yeah. fascinating. I'm sure so many people. I mean, I reckon 999 out of 1,000 people in the face of that first failure would would disappear. Yeah. Like it's, yeah. It's, 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 I think it's actually very common in South Africa. Rugby is the big deal. And I think there are so many sporting high school-aged superstar rugby players who make the first step after school and then vanish because it's too big a step. Whereas you made that step and then it was too big a step, but then you regrouped and you reassessed. And I think that's quite interesting. So the, the question I was going to ask then is, do you think, like if there's, a, if there's Dom Scott's potential as a percentage, are you right at that potential? Like you're doing all the right things or do you reckon there's still 10% you can find or whatever it is? I mean, you changed coaches, right? So yeah. that means you're looking for where's the next level of improvement going to come from? So where, where, where do you go now? Um, I think, I, I think there's definitely an extra 10% for, for myself. I mean, in college, I was training more like a 3k runner than anything else. And I did well at the 3k. I won my first national title in the 3000 indoors back in 2015. Um, and then I was training a little bit like a 5k runner outdoors, but was still working a lot on my speed. Yet I was running these great 10ks and qualifying for the Olympics, uh, in the 10,000 meters. And only the past year do I feel like I've really started to train like a 5K, 10K runner. And I was able to take, um, I think, 18 seconds off my 5K time this past year. I took it down from, oh, 16 seconds. I took it down from a 15.20 to a 15.04. Oh, you need to update that on Wikipedia. Wikipedia's <laughs> got 15.20. Yep. Um, That's look, why we have this podcast. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> someone out there. Edit the page yes. on Wikipedia. I'll, I'll do it. It's 15.04 points. Oh, I don't even know. <laughs> okay. Okay, we'll um, look it up. We'll look yeah. it up. Yeah. And I haven't raced the 10,000 on the track since Rio. So I'm really excited to race it in a week and a half's time mm. and see and see how far I've come along since then. Um, but I definitely think that there's still ways to progress. For example, I wasn't doing activation exercises before my runs in college. I actually didn't even know about activation exercises. I wish this was a video is. blog because then we could actually <laughs> show it. We're going to have to now describe it. I can describe it. I can describe it. So when I change coaches, um, Joe Bossard has all of his athletes do activation exercises before we go run. Activation exercises, if I can verbally explain them, are stretches that are non-static. So you're moving and waking up your body and making sure that all your muscles are firing and ready to work. So one of the first exercises that we do is just normal leg swings, forwards, back, and side, side to side. Then we'll do some knee raises, lifting your knee over a hurdle. Um, then we do lunges, forwards, to the side, and backwards. Then we do some, um, some hamstring act act activation exercises, glute bridges, um, some other runner's touch, uh, like a runner's touch um, which is also hamstring. Then we do some glute exercises using a little band. Um, and then we do some core exercises. And I think that's about it. Um, and as, as maybe an injury arises, maybe you'll add in another activation exercise to make sure that 
the that point of injury is ready to run. Um, but yeah, so it's it's exercises that are or stretches that are non-static. You're moving constantly um, and just kind of waking up your body. Mm. Yeah, these are. I, I I mean I don't coach many athletes, but th- when I tell people, I say don't waste time doing static stretches like I used to see my dad do. I remember when he used to go running, it was five to ten minutes of stretching. Nowadays... So static stretches are ones where you kind of touch your toes touch for your as toes. long as you can. Yeah, sit, That's old school. Sit, sit down, you make like a figure four, straight leg reach or whatever, not raise, uh, sit and reach type thing, hands on toes, hold it for 15 seconds, you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Quads, the old pull your foot up towards the, your backside, uh, calf muscle, push the wall over. Yep. Um, <laughs> you see them at races every week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this, and this, Surprised they haven't pushed a few houses over. <laughs> This is the stuff that was done 10, 20, 30 years ago, but it is now more about switching the muscle on. So even just an isometric, which is like holding the muscle in an activated position, like if you stand like you would imagine a flamingo would stand on one leg with your other legs down, but your knee bent at 90 degrees, that's activating that hamstring muscle. You do that and then go run and you'll feel different to just running. So what is the, I mean, modern science, what is it, what is it saying about the modern stretch? Is it... It's not that 15-second hold anymore. What is If I'm going to stretch my hamstrings, what is that activation? It's not a stretch. It's an activation. Now. There's a I'm going to jump in. So mm, yeah. Dynamic, we still, yeah. yeah, so we still do static stretches. We just do those post-run, yes. post-workout. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's the moving stretches that we do prior to the run. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's quite a good point. Yeah. So it's definitely stretches to start. And you can activate. I mean, even just as you're sitting or standing, if you just straighten your knee aggressively or that's activating your quad to straighten your knee that's switching that quad on it's not the best one to do because it's a static knee extension but it's these are these types of things people should play with this more often switch your glutes on you're basically just reminding your brain where each muscle is and how to turn it on because once you start that's exactly what you need and it will use those muscles once it's turned on yeah yeah Yeah, exactly i remember a few years ago interviewing interviewing paula radcliffe um the world marathon still the real record holder in the marathon and uh, she said she spent as much time doing all the activations and ab and and core stability work that she did running it was literally like half and half was was the activations and the core stability and core was a massive part of her workouts uh, workout routine Is, is it is it a massive part of your workout routine or is it just part of those active stretches and I would say core is a big part of our gym workouts and our activation exercises because we make sure that we're always engaging our core you know it may not necessarily look like a core exercise to someone that's looking onto us but we're making sure that our core is activated and we're using um our core to stabilize us during exercises so you're not doing you're not doing traditional sit-ups and 10 times no we may we may be part of that session yeah. yeah We may, but what I'm saying is it may, we may also be doing a hamstring exercise, but we're making sure that our whole body is, wor- is working. Because remember, when you're running, especially when you're running three minutes a K or quicker, the, the torque, which is the rotational force produced by your right leg swinging forward, needs to be counteracted by something. So that something comes from your arms in the opposite plane or opposite direction, and then obviously it's all rotating around the core. So even a, even running, if you're engaging the core, is a core activator. So that would that would be obviously quite important to do. Does just on that, does Joe tinker with your running technique, your stride mechanics? So he hasn't worked too much with my stride mechanics. I think he's somewhat happy with my okay. form at the moment. Um, but I did have a huge 
change in my form when I moved to the States in 2011. Mm -hmm. um, I had kind of a shuffling running style from, I think from running next to my mom growing up and <laughs> she's obviously a marathon, an ultra marathon runner. So I just, you know, adapted my mom's running style as I was running next to her. Um, and when I got to the States, Lance Harder told me, you are never going to be able to run quick on the track with that type of style. And we practiced lifting my knee up. And I actually remember on one of my long runs, him telling me, every step you take on this run, you're going to imagine stepping over a pipe or stepping over a gutter. Hmm. Um, and so that I was actually picking up my knee, using my hip flexors and picking up my knees. Um, so that made a huge difference. Um, also, I remember later on in college, about a year after that, there's there's an event in the indoor season in the States called the DMR, the Distance Medley Relay. And it's a real magical event. Everyone wants to run it. Everyone wants to be on their team's DMR. Um, it goes um, 1,200, 400, 800 mile. And I wanted to be on that team. And I knew that the only way I was ever going to be able to run the mile leg of the University of Arkansas DMR was if I got quicker. So I really tried to work on my form, lift, uh, working on that knee lift um, so that one day I could run on the DMR. When you're running now, do you still remind yourself of like form tips? Do you say, you know, relax, keep the shoulders nice and relaxed? Is that constantly going through your mind about your, your, your form when you're running? A hundred percent. Oh my gosh. Yeah. All the time. I mean, when I'm on the track doing my workouts and when I'm out just on a recovery run, I'm constantly thinking about what I'm doing, um, how I'm striking the ground, what my body language is like, uh, what position my head and shoulders are in. I'm always thinking about how I'm using my body and how I'm actually running. What about when you're racing? What do you think about then? I'm, I'm, I always ask. Yeah, that's, uh, so. that's a really good question. Um, I remember hearing one say they counted to 100 on each side every time their foot. So like every oh, time really? their right foot landed, they counted to 100 and then reset to zero. So they would do a marathon like that, which you could work out. It takes about a it's minute a to get hundreds. to 100. <laughs> and you were going to do this for 130 odd minutes, whatever it was. Wow. So I, like what do you think? About I definitely it? don't do any math um, <laughs> while I'm running. I'm not doing any counting. So you're in that rear, just by the way, for listeners, that rear to 2016 where Dom's PB comes from is where Elma Zayana ran 29.17, which is the Cone World Record, and the top four were under 30. So that was just a nuts race from the start. Like there was a Kenyan woman who took them through halfway in under 15 minutes, which was the Olympic record. For the for 5K. 5K. <laughs> so you found yourself in your, one of your first professional races basically like hanging on for dear life in the most aggressive 10K that had ever been run. Yeah. So what, what where was were going you with all your this mind going down? I mean, were you in the lead bunch for at some point? There wasn't point? a bunch. No, That's what was so crazy. Within, within 400 meters, it was like a human train. It, it was, was one of the first events, wasn't it? Yes, it was, it was the, the first final. No, Friday morning. They Friday ran morning. that one in the morning. It was, right. yeah. Most people mm. missed it. It was the mm. first final um, yeah. on the track and it was in the morning. Yeah. It was kind of strange. Um, so, but yeah, there were no packs, unfortunately. We were single file. I felt like we were running from our for our lives yeah. from the gun. You must have thought within 800 meters is like, oh my goodness. I just thought, yeah, this is this is insane. This is not what I had mentally prepared for. <laughs> for. Yeah. yeah. Um, when I'm racing, yeah, I'm not counting, not doing any math. Joe has something that he likes to say to us in hard workouts and that's clear mind. Um, and that's just, you know, kind of trying to be peaceful in your mind. And it's, it's amazing when 
you kind of clear your mind and try to relax your mind, mm. everything else relaxes from like your shoulders to yeah, all the way through your body. So you're not tense. You're not lifting your shoulders up to your ears anymore. You're just kind of relaxed um, and not thinking and trying not to think about how bad this hurts and rather just kind of freeing yourself. Mm. Um, so clear mind is definitely something I, I like to think about as well as just being present in a race, like making sure you're engaged and you are aware of what's going on around you. Um, because there are constantly moves being made, especially in the shorter distance in the 1500, uh, in the three K there are moves being made. If someone comes past you and they're about to, you know, kind of break away from the pack. You have to be ready to go with them. You have to be ready for the change of pace. Um, so probably clear mind, you know, making sure. I'm relaxed mentally, which will relax the rest of my body and allow me to run uh, as efficiently as possible, as well as being aware of what's happening around me. Mm. Do you have do you have mantras that you say to yourself in your head? In, um, that, in that clear mind. Other state? than other than other clear than, mind. Than do you guys meditate? Mind. Do you practice clear mind outside of running? I don't meditate because clear mind's a paradox. What right? I thought about the mantra first though. What about <laughs> it talks about mantras like yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. strong, I'm yeah. powerful, I'm Honestly, fast. I don't really. I think sometimes going into a particular race, there may be something I've, I'm telling myself or reminding myself of a workout that I just completed or reminding myself of a goal um, for that race of what I'm trying to accomplish in that race. Um, you know, sometimes, sometimes it may just be something silly I'm thinking of. Um, you know, you're not going to die today. Yes, it's going to be really hard, but you're not going to die today. Um, but no, I don't have any mantras. I don't write anything on my hands. You know, some runners do that. I don't, I'm not repeating anything to myself over and over again. Um, it's more just like, this is my job. I'm getting to do something that I love to do and I'm going to go and run hard. So meditation thing, any is that part of your yeah? So it's interesting that you bring that up because I do. I've noticed that more and more distance runners are starting to do that. Mm. Um, I I haven't practiced any type of meditation, um, so no, I can't really give any. Just because clear that. mind is a paradox, right? It's like don't think about anything. Well, now you're thinking about it. Not. <laughs> it's like with golf. Have you ever had a clear mind, Ross? No, no well, not not when I was trying to think about yeah. having a clear mind. Yeah. I, then you can't. So the, the ability to get into that state of blankness is actually quite a difficult skill yeah. to acquire. It's like a golfer standing on the tee and saying, don't think about the lake on the left. <laughs> Nine out of ten times that ball's going to the left because like, it's the same. Don't think about a pink elephant. It's very difficult to not consciously think about not thinking anyway i'm messing i'm confusing myself now <laughs> but but uh, it, it, yeah i when you're doing the training runs and you're practicing clear mind i suppose in a sense you're yes. meditating but yeah. you've got to you've got to get better at it to do it i mean i think a trick that i like to do is following either my training partner's ponytail or if it's a guy it's normally like the back of their hat or whatever they're wearing, the back of their shirt. Mm. And it's just focusing on that and nothing else, like not worrying about what's going on around you, mm. not worrying about, you know, what's going on at home. It's just being present and relaxing. Mm. And must running. be quite a nice space when everything's going right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, you're still in a lot of pain because <laughs> you're running fast and hard. But yeah, it's it's definitely, I, I guess, peaceful. Yeah. Oh, I, saw, I thought one of the old, one of the old uh, sort of philosophies about running, I suppose, in endurance sport is that, that the, the pain is always there. You just get faster. Is that true of your running history? You have you always is it always is it always painful? But you're just faster at doing it. 
I would have to agree with that. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's ever become easy. And you know what? That actually reminds me. Um, that was kind of one of the reasons I felt it was time to change coaches and move to a, a training group with professional other professional runners um, was Coach Harder, Lance Harder was still coaching me um, my year, my first year running professionally. And I just felt like he wasn't able to push me into that kind of pain zone anymore. Um, and I was doing a lot of my workouts with collegiate athletes and, you know, I was kind of pulling them more than they were able to help push or pull me. Um, and I think as a, as an athlete, you know, that you need to be pushing yourself you know, not, not every day, not every workout even, but there needs to be that, that pain in some workouts that, um, stimulus, um, to make you a better runner. You can't keep doing the same thing. Um, you can't get complacent. Still to come. And I hate that word. I hate that word selfish because I don't want to be a selfish person. And I don't know what happened, but I guess I just blacked out and fell into the crowd. What do you really want to achieve and what will make you feel like you're ready to hang up your spikes? Talking about pushing into pain. <laughs> we can't not. We have, we can't to, talk, not we have to talk up. about this. Yeah, you know where this is going, right? Yeah. Like, where this is going. <laughs> so just before you came to South Africa, World Cross Country Championships was in Denmark and that was obviously a big deal race for you and it's exceptionally rare for an athlete unless there's something pathologically wrong which there's I mean now I'm talking cardiovascular disease or something like that for an athlete to collapse in the middle of the race and not be able to finish I mean if people go on YouTube and you look up Gabrielle Anderson in 1984 you saw an example in the women's uh, marathon in Los Angeles and there's a couple of others of athletes who like basically exceed their own physiological limits and you are one of them (laughs) (laughs) so maybe you maybe it's better it's look it's much better you talk about it than me but you can tell us about that denmark race and what what you've learned from the scene first you're up at the world cross country champs you're in the lead pack i think you were the leading african runner after the first lap as far Mm -hmm. as i remember and then kind of it all went backwards from there but just kind of take us through that race yeah, so I mean, I feel like we need to rewind and even, you know, go further back than that. Yeah. Um, prior to the World Cross Country Championships, I had spent three weeks training in Boulder, Colorado with my training um, partners and my coach, Joe Bossard, watching over me. And he gave me some crazy workouts and I was able to do them. I think some of the workouts were meant to be workouts that I wasn't meant to complete and I wasn't meant to hit times. And during the workouts, Joe was adjusting them to make them harder. Like what? Can we, can we, can we learn about those? Yeah, sure. Tell um, us one example okay, of so a I was crazy training, workout you shouldn't have been able to do. Yeah, so I was training for yeah. a 10,000 meter cross country race. I was at altitude. Um, Boulder is around, you should know, Ross, yes, how high is it? Well, Denver's the mile high city and Boulder's just 45 to an hour away. So it's a mile, 1,600 yeah. So that's Johannesburg. It's about height, Johannesburg. Which is high enough that your endurance you performance, it. you hurt. Yes. It's, it's tough. So, what's the, just r- roughly, what's the endur- endurance um, loss at that sort of altitude? Oof, Ross, putting any, me on the spot idea? here. They used to say 1% per 100 meters elevation. Um, that's in one. That's one percent of VO two max, which is the measurable amount of oxygen you use. So ten percent so, plus would that be a? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. So ten percent worse off at, at higher. Yeah, so a, a thirty minute ten k runner goes to altitude. They're running thirty one or slower easily. Yeah, easy. I mean, in performance, no, but physiologically, more than ten. But but yeah, you're, you're easily losing a minute to a minute and a half. 
Okay. So mm. one of these workouts that I remember was <laughs> now I'm now I'm gonna forget it. No, it was four times two K plus a hard K. And Joe had written the workout to be six twenty, six minutes and twenty seconds for each two K and a hard last K. And he didn't write a time. He said, let's just see what you can run. And I can't remember my splits exactly, but my first 2K was slightly, I had a pacer. Uh, one of my really good friends, uh, Eric Van Halen, came and helped me. So I owe a lot of this to him. But my first 2K was slightly off. I think it was like 622. And then it was 618. And then six, I think like 14. And then 608. And then I hit my last K in sub three minutes. It was like uh, 258 or 257 and Eric was throwing up and Joe was jumping up and down on wow. me. What's so, the recovery? Um, it was like three minutes. I jogged mm. a 400. Mm. So it was enough for me to get my heart rate down. It wasn't huge. Mm. Um, so it was a huge workout. Joe was pumped. Um, and we knew that I was ready to run fast. So then fast forward. So then I go to Denmark. So now you're thinking you're in the shape of your life. Yes. Thinking I'm session. in the shape of my life. That session and a couple other sessions. I'd been in Boulder, um, you know, just pretty much working out and resting and recovering. Um, I'm going to be a devil's advocate slightly here. Yeah. If, if he gave you that session and you said, you're probably not going to do this and you did, is that not the confidence you had going into it? Or do you think that he knew... If you, if you hadn't finished that session, would you have gone into those World Cross Country Champs as confident? As yeah, so I mean, were? so he didn't tell me, I don't think you're going to be able to finish this or you're not going to be able to hit these times, but he will imply to us when it's a very big workout. You know, he'll be like, Sunday's a big day, like, get ready, mm. that type of thing. Um, and I think because he was there, he knew that if something was going wrong, he could just cut it or adjust it. Um, so I, I don't think he would have ever run me into the wall or um, hurt me going into a big race as a big a race as big as the world cross-country championships but anyway so we left very excited um, and had this big goal of trying to be in the top 20 which would have given me an automatic qualifier for the world outdoor track championships later this year in Doha in the 10,000 meters so they give the top 20 athletes at the world cross-country championships an automatic qualifier to the World 10K Championships. Mm -hmm. And given your history at the World Championships, we know a couple of years ago you didn't make the team uh, very controversially. So that's, that's a huge incentive for you. Right. You're right. I was very excited. I mean, even if I had been top 20, South Africa would still need to select me. <laughs> you know, they, they have to still select me to be on their team. Okay. Um, but we'll, anyway. We'll leave the politics out of it. <laughs> yeah, we'll leave the politics out. So anyway, so I go to Denmark feeling really confident, really excited. You know, I'm fit, healthy, um, and the mind was ready. I was ready to run hard. The course was was pretty much insane. Um, I don't really know how to explain it, but you were never running flat. I think there was about 100 meters flat, um, which wasn't an easy 100 meters because it included both a mud pit and a sand pit. When you weren't running the 100 meters that were flat through the mud and sand pits, you were either running up or down and there were very steep climbs. There was one especially steep climb, which was up I'm not going to pronounce this correctly, but up the Moose Guard yeah. uh, Museum roof. And they had actually structured this whole course around running up and down this museum's roof. Um, 
so the course was the course was very challenging and you know Joe and I ran it the day before and you know we just discussed I'm gonna have to be prepared to hurt and it's gonna be the hardest race I probably ever run in my life and that's okay um, I just have to be have to be brave enough to go after it so Joe wanted me to the the race even started on a hill the first the first 300 meters were climbing up a hill Joe wanted me to run that first 300 meters more conservatively rather than to sprint out the gates like you would normally in a race, um, but rather climb the hill rather than sprinting the hill. Let's not hurt me the first 300 meters. But then he wanted me to attach to the to the leading pack, um, the leading pack of Africans. We knew it was going to be a group of East Africans. Um, and so I did exactly that. The first 300 meters, I kind of took my time to get up the hill, just kind of went into low power mode, climbing up the hill. Um, and then once we got to the top of the hill, there was a slight downhill. And I, you know, kind of threw my body into the downhill, let gravity do its work um, and caught up onto the back of that East African pack. We had thought that if I could just hold on to that front group, that there would be enough separation that happens between that pack and the rest of the race that I could just kind of hold on to 20th, top 20 for the rest of the race. Knew I was going to have to run hard, um, but hoped that, you know, I could have some people to work with throughout the rest of the course. Um, and that kind of happened, except that the East Africans just kept kept pushing the pace. Um, they were not afraid of this course. They were not afraid of the hills. Um, and even though some people had thought it may, the course may have been an equalizer between them, the East Africans and the Europeans, it was not. Um, they've actually never had as big of a spread between the East Africans and the Europeans, if I can use those two terms. Um, and yeah, I was running really, really hard. And I had my husband, my coach, Joe, and my dad there. And they were all running from point to point in the race, you know, screaming at me, <laughs> supporting me, reminding me of the goal. And so I think just almost every 200 meters, I was getting this extra jolt of motivation to push myself a little bit harder um, and obviously ended up just pushing too hard where the first lap I think I was about 18th spot after the second lap I was low 20s maybe like 22nd third lap I was high 20s and then that fourth lap so five laps uh, five laps of two kilometers and that fourth lap I really started to feel it and just started to you know kind of work through the pain um, and I slipped into kind of the mid thirties that lap, but I had one more lap to go and I was like, okay, maybe top 20 is out the window, but I'm still having a great day. You know, there are not many people in front of me. There are a lot more behind me. I just have to, you know, push hard and maybe I can be top 30. I mean, uh, how's your body feeling at this point? I mean, are you... How's your mind feeling? I mean, yeah. clear mind, no way. No, no clear mind. No clear no mind. Clear I mean, at this mind. stage, at this stage, like every... Uh, it's like if you've seen those movies of submarines taking on water, that's basically what your brain would be like. Just every alarm going off possible, yes? Yes, yeah. 100%. I think the hardest thing about this course was you were never able to just... Yeah. You're never able to just breathe. You're mm. never able to relax. You were either going uphill, downhill, working through a, a water zone, which was, you know, a, a, um, a 
splash zone. A bog, uh, yeah. a, a mud, a mud bath, a sand pit, actually multiple sand pits. Yeah. They had what they called the berm, which is like a, a mountain biking term, um, and all these climbs. So, and my one of my race plans was also to try and use the downhills as best as I could too and kind steep. of throw myself mm. at them. And mm. I think they were actually too yeah, steep too almost steep. to do that, yeah. that I was hurting my legs, hurting myself every time I was trying to throw myself down these hills. Because that's what that's what listeners wouldn't always if you if you're even a decent recreational runner, you, you use downhills to recover. But if you're an elite runner on a seven or eight percent downhill, you're going two fifty five, three minutes a K. It's actually more painful than going up. Yeah, it was in a different way. It was it was painful. Yeah, so I would never caught my breath for almost eight kilometers, and cool. never had a clear mind. That's for sure. Mm. I was constantly in the zone and focused. And then I had two kilometers to try and run one last crazy hard two k's and try and be in that top thirty. Um, and the race itself was actually just over ten thousand meters. It was about ten thousand two hundred and forty meters, which in cross country they're allowed to do. The race is allowed to be slightly over or under distance. Um, and I was coming down the second final downhill for the course and I felt my legs buckle underneath me. Um, you know, the one leg kind of wobbles, then the other kind of wobbles. Once again, I'm trying to throw myself down this incredibly steep hill. Um, but I'm still running. I'm still on two feet and take the turn to start going up the Smooth God Museum roof one final time. I've already done it four times. <laughs> oh, so you on that back straight there where you ran next to what looked like a forest. This is where it happened. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. And yeah. now I'm climbing yeah. up the roof for the mm. final time. Um, and you have the spectators all cheering for you alongside the roof and, I don't know what happened, but I guess I just blacked out and fell into the crowd. And apparently I was verbally saying, I want to finish. I want to finish. Let me finish. And, you know, trying to crawl my way, trying to keep moving. And my husband, I guess, had seen my legs buckling on the downhill and knew that I was in trouble. Um, and he had kind of run over to me. He didn't want to touch me because he wasn't sure if, if he touched me, if I'd immediately be disqualified. But I guess every the spectators themselves were so worried about me that they pretty much took me out of the race themselves. Um, I don't think I was in the state to finish. You know, my husband was like, dumb. I don't think he would have made it. But at that point, I was halfway up this hill, the Muscard Museum roof yeah. hill, and I had about... 300 meters to the finish. So I was like 950 meters through this course, which is just, you know, insane. Um, right outside 30th. So, um, yeah, I've never run that hard before. I don't think I've ever really wanted something so bad before either. Um, definitely it put a lot of pressure on myself going into the race. Um, you know, having spent three weeks away from my husband in Boulder preparing for this race, having my dad, husband and coach fly across the world to watch me race. Um, I really wanted to do something special, not only for myself, but for them and for South Africa. Um, and I, you know, I thought I was ready to do it. And I guess I wasn't quite ready on that day or didn't maybe run the right way to achieve that goal. Um, but yeah, I, I was, I was distraught afterwards um, and embarrassed. I got carried off on a stretcher and I thought they were carrying me head first down the hill. And I guess I just kept screaming like, 
let me go, let me go, or not downhill, something like that. And I guess they weren't carrying me downhill backwards, but that's how um, mm. I guess my head was spinning, that I was so uncomfortable. Um, and then they took me to the medical tent and did all the tests, blood sugar, heart rate, all of that. And Body temperature? I kept saying I was hot and I kept yeah. asking for ice. They didn't have ice. How weird is that? They had no ice to give me. You see, it's because they think it's cool. And you, I mean, what was the temperature? 15, and it was warm. 15 no, it degrees was Celsius? Was it warm? Yeah, it was warm. So most probably around somewhere it was maybe yeah. warmer than that. See, when I hear an athlete collapse within 30 minutes, that's like the first part of call is heat. See, I was so yeah. hot. Um, anyway, so I'm in I'm in the medical tent. <laughs> they don't have any ice for me, unfortunately. I think my husband was holding a water bottle to my forehead. It probably wasn't a very cold water bottle. But um, all of a sudden, you know, Joe starts talking to me. And, you know, I thought I'd really disappointed him, thought I'd disappointed my husband. Um, then I start hearing about, about some other athletes' races, and then all of a sudden I kind of my mindset changed and I actually felt proud. I felt proud that I'd gone after it. I felt proud that I'd put myself in the race and actually tried something, tried to achieve something um, rather than just kind of running the race and never competing, never going after something as big as top 20 in a world cross country race. Um, yeah, I'm still really bummed that, you know, I never crossed that finish line and um, didn't complete the race, but I'm proud that that I went for it. Hmm. I mean, I think there's two questions there. First of all, the pressure of having loved ones next to you on the on the track itself. I mean, that that is it's a good thing, but also potentially a bad thing in many ways because you feel that pressure. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I think honestly, this is something that I'm kind of working through internally at the moment. Um, I just feel like throughout my life, I've had a lot of people put my running before themselves or before what they would have chosen to do if their if their daughter, sister, wife, loved one wasn't a professional athlete. So in some way I feel like I I owe it to them to give my very best on the day. Um, and but I know it's also not healthy to run with stress, pressure, guilt. So it's something I'm kind of, you know, internally working on um, because like we were talking about earlier, clear mind, you know, you got to run, yeah. kind of run free. You can't run with all of that weight on you. Um, you know, I, f I feel very lucky to have people that support me and want the best for me and want to see me succeed and want me to live my dream to the fullest. Um, but sometimes I do turn that into a bit of pressure. What's the, I mean, Ross... Your thoughts on that? I mean, it's a very tricky one because you still need a support team around you. You can't move away from that. But there always, there's always going to be that guilt about what people put. But I suppose those people have also chosen to be part of your team, whether it's your dad or your coach. Well, that's the, that's the point is people, okay, people don't always know what they're signing up for. That's, that's, that's one issue. What like, if Cameron knew? <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is... Yeah, there's, so, there's, there's a lot of depth in that. I mean, that's the, the, what motivates you. In this instance, it's anticipated guilt. It's not even guilt. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's actually, it's actually like a self, it's, inflicted is the wrong word, but it's like a self-created guilt because you're trying to be a good person. And then yeah. you end up actually like 
loading all these other burdens on yourself and you're going to try and race 10K with, with the psychological burden. But what to me is really fascinating is motivation is obviously crucial. And it's particularly... What is the right, what's the right motivation? Yeah, yeah. because the, particularly... So I did my PhD on how the brain regulates performance and you can't study that without encountering psychology and emotion. Now, some people would group those two things together. I think they're slightly different. You could probably even expand emotion and psychology into spirituality and a whole bunch of other things also. But, but the, the, so, so the physiology, the signals that are coming from the muscles, from the body temperature sensors, the lungs, the heart, the enzymes and whatnot in the body, wherever those things are being sensed, th those are interpreted in the context of how much does this mean to me? Am I willing for this to hurt this much right now? And what's really interesting is that normally there'd be a fail-safe against that, which is why you never would have trained yourself into this state. You, I bet you've had days where you failed to finish sessions and you've actually just cracked trying to run a 255 last K and you couldn't. You could only run a 308 and you ended up jogging the last 200 meters, right? <laughs> but you don't collapse. Right. So the degree of motivation that it takes to actually push that system of regulation, the brain, the psychology, the motivation, so much that you collapse is, is one in 10,000, 100,000. I mean, how many elite athlete races would you have to see to see one Dom Scott fall into the crowd? Huge. So that's really interesting to me. So where does that motivation come from? Is it the, gover is it the governor theory? Well, it's a yeah. So my PhD was on the governor. Th I didn't. I didn't use that word because in the academic world, and this is not. We don't have to go into it now. <laughs> the, the word go central governor became so divisive that people were rejecting the concept because of the name. But that's yeah. basically what it is. It's that your ability to keep going is a function of how you perceive all those signals. But that in itself is interpreted against what this means to me. So at the two kilometer mark of a training run, you would never ha you would never accept the level of suffering and pain that you would accept at the 2k mark of a race let alone the 9k mark of a race so physiology is interpreted by psychology and emotion and then the performance is the result that's the very we, we must do a pod on this but that's the summary of it so, so now so, you've got so, an athlete so, so elite athletes are capable of pushing themselves in their brains further than the average athlete in almost other words, for if, I, if, I, if my body says to me when I'm feeling a bit of pain in the quads, okay, you better slow down, Dom's ability is to push way, way beyond that. Yeah. So it's not just a physical thing, it's potentially a mental thing. That Almost certainly. Yeah. And that's why you can do these long runs at like what's a higher intensity relatively than most recreational average joggers can do. And you can run 5K at three minutes a K, which is for you probably 92% of your VO2 max pace. Most people couldn't run for 15 minutes at 80%. And that's your ability to get closer and closer to the ceiling. What's unusual is to exceed the ceiling, which is what's happened here. Um, and whether that's heat, as I say, my first thought is we, how hot were you? The only thing cunning against that is it sounds like you were quite lucid. You knew there was a finish line and you wanted to go. A lot of time people who have heat stroke actually don't even know their own names. Whereas you sound like you were no, actually I'm, quite with it cognitively. Yeah. You weren't rational. Yeah. Like put me back on my bike. You know the, the famous Tom Simpson, uh, anyone who knows cycling, yep. in 1968 I think or seven, Tom Simpson fell off his bicycle near the summit of a very famous climb and his last words allegedly were put me back on my bike <laughs> because he didn't know that he was actually in like on death's door. He was full of drugs at the time, unfortunately. Well, you see, and those, and those drugs, those amphetamines are doing the same thing motivation yeah. does, is they take away the normal perception of fatigue. So, so, so anyway, so if we bring this back to the, 
the, the guilt motivation thing, you're so highly motivated that it actually becomes counterproductive. And that motivation is coming from this perceived guilt. And I mean, you've, you said you were working through it and you've got some strategies to, to deal with it. I think the bottom line for me is that everyone who gets to be part of the journey you've created is privileged, not sacrificing. Yeah. I mean, that's the point is that people want to be part of this because your family wouldn't be at Rio. I mean, maybe they'd have gone as spectators, but how much better to watch our daughter? So yeah. this, the, people, are making, people are making what you perceive to be sacrifice or compromise. It's actually not. It's a privilege. Make sense? Yeah, no, it makes it makes a lot of sense. Um, like I said, it's something that I'm kind of working through. Um, it is. It's not something that you can just switch on and off, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I so, do feel very pri- privileged to be, you know, in the position that I am to be a sponsored athlete, um, running as my job. Um, but there are lots of people that kind of have to. I don't want to use the word sacrifice, but you're unfortunately as a professional athlete, it's not just like I said earlier, it's not just about practice. It's about what you're doing in those other 23 hours a day that matter as well. And then the people around you are having to adapt to that lifestyle. And sometimes it just, for me, (laughs) um, it, I just feel bad to make the people around me have to live in this lifestyle where they're also having to keep their legs up and eat this healthy food and, you know, live in this way. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, that that's true. And again, there's so much, so much, I think, important yeah, stuff it's, here. It's a podcast on it. its own. But, yeah. but yeah. That's, that's the same as the guy who's the chief executive of a company and then gets relocated to a new office has to go through. You know what I mean? It's not, that, that situation is not unique to, to you. As a, that may have happened in your life even had you been in marketing, for right. instance. Right, yeah. So the, so the thing, I don't know, we, do we want to still pursue that line? Yeah, <laughs> no, I've got one. I just got one. On that, but then, and then I've got another Dr. Phil moment. Coming, so. <laughs> I've got one quick question there. So the, the reason why this is kind of an interesting discussion is there's always a perception to be a top athlete, you need to be inherently selfish. Is that is it a fair thing to say? I mean, do you, do, you, do you see yourself as having to be selfish sometimes? Yes. Do you think most athletes are having to be selfish sometimes? Yes, and I hate that word. I hate that mm. word selfish because I don't want to be a selfish person. And unfortunately, that word does get used around me. And I mean, I cringe. Like, that's not a word that I want to be used to describe me or my lifestyle. Um, but we have to make choices. We, you know, we know what's right and wrong, and we know what's going to get us to that next level, to take that next step towards being a better runner, towards being a better dom. And unfortunately, you know, it's not normally the popular route. It's not normally the things that everyone wants to do on their weekends. Um, so that's why it can be perceived as being selfish. Uh, it's certainly not glamorous. No, it's not glamorous. <laughs> Ross, your question? Well, you semi teed it up for me. Okay. In, in 20 years from now, when Mike and I do our 1,000 Science <laughs> of Sport podcast, we're working on, voices. working on one a week here, and you come back for it, and it's the 2039, May 2039. What, sorry for this being unnecessarily deep. <laughs> what, will it, what would your career have looked like for you to say it was successful? See, that's another good question um, because people ask me that too. People, 
very close to me asked me, you know, what do you really want to achieve and what will make you feel like you're ready to hang up your spikes? And honestly, I don't have a good answer for that because for such a long time, since I was about 12 years old, I had two dreams and they were to earn a scholarship to run and study at the United States and to compete in the Olympic Games for South Africa. And once I achieved them, honestly, it was mm. kind of weird. Um, yeah. I didn't really know what was next. Um, obviously, I wanted to be a professional athlete. I guess that kind of goes hand in hand with coming, becoming an Olympian. Um, but being a 5K, 10K runner, at least those are my events at the moment, there's definitely doubt in my mind that I'll ever be able to win a medal at a world championships because of the East Africans just dominating in my events. I realized that there are some special occasions where like my training partner, Emma Coben won the world championships in 2017 in the 3000 meter steeplechase. And in 2015, Emily Infeld from America won the bronze medal in the 10,000 meters. Like there are definitely occasions where the East Africans are not on their A game and, you know, a, a non-East African is able to come in there and steal a medal. Or I shouldn't say steal, they've definitely earned it. Um, they're able to get a medal. But that definitely is something that I, I don't, I don't use earning a medal at one of these world championships or Olympics as a goal for me, because it's something that would be amazing if it happened. But realistically i know the chances are very slim um i i'm hoping that one day i will just feel content with my career will feel that i am at that max um place like you just asked earlier mm. um you know is there still 10% more for dom or is she at her max is she at her full potential i'm hoping that i'll know when i've kind of given it my all and tried everything that's out there other mm. than drugs <laughs> um <laughs> that yeah that i've raced at so, my full content so there's a who, someone's philosophy is it is it the japanese is the japanese company's philosophy is ask why five times but like in this case i could ask when would that be <laughs> like what would it take but i'm not going to do that but what might be useful is you ask the question the other way around is like from this moment on having already achieved your two bucket list items so that that bucket list is now burned and thrown right. away what would it take? Or oh, ticked off? No, the opposite. <laughs> Why say burn and thrown away? Well, it's ticked off. So now it's okay. time for a new yeah. one. You've got yeah. to add to it. Right? Yeah. So there's a, there's a line through those. What would it take from this moment forward for you to one day look back and say, actually, I failed from now on? Because that's not necessarily, sure. that's not necessarily the opposite of success, but it might be instructive for you to say, if from this moment forth, the 20, what are we, third, second, whatever of April, over the next 10 years, there are five things that I have to avoid. Not that you ever want to live your life to avoid stuff, but yeah. if you know what and where not to go, it might help you figure out where you want to go. That's a really, really know, good. I've never thought of it in that way. Um, I mean, honestly, I think if I had to hang up my spikes right now, I'd be upset because I love running. I love my job. Um, but I don't think I'd be disappointed in my career. And the reason being because I feel like I've taken every opportunity that's been given to me, um, as well as like used it to its full potential. Um, like I said, going to the States, realizing pretty early on that I needed to be doing something different to make 
um, to make take the next step and doing it. And then in my pro career, realizing in my first year that I needed to change coaches, that I needed to be training with other like-minded professional athletes, um, that, and then I made that change, you know, I made that, tr- mm. took that next step. Um, so I, so yeah, so that's a really good way of looking at it. I don't think that I could be it's, disappointed if. It's like, you know, that exercise where, where they say you got to write a letter to yourself, your 16 year old self, you know, say write a letter yeah. today. You want to do the opposite. You want to say like, imagine Dom Scott at 45 is writing to Dom Scott today. What would you be warning yourself not to do and therefore motivating yourself to do? I, that might be an interesting. Anyway, I just, yeah. I'm just <laughs> curious as to what, it's what thought success for and failure looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Tom Scott, it's been an absolute privilege having you here today. It's been a marvelous insight into your life and the stresses and the the slightly unglamorous side of it. (laughs) I think for most people who look at elite athletes, they see incredibly fit people going out there, living their dreams, and you certainly are doing that. And I think when I look at the discussion we've had today, I think I've always been massively um, encouraged by your ability to overcome things like a finishing 144th in your first race and you've had issues with the cross country this event no doubt you'll be back and you'll be fighting and and getting further up that field every time you have a world cross country championship so it's been a, a wonderful lesson for me just to, just to listen to you today Thank ross you. final words from you i just like you don't often hear candid yeah. revelations admissions and just like really really good honesty with insight and this is why this is why we want to do this and dom's our first guest so this honestly is fantastic i couldn't imagine it would be any better so thanks dom really really appreciate it thanks for having me thank you for listening to the science of sport podcast follow us on twitter at sports sidepod and on instagram at science of sport podcast Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.